Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Introducing the Entree Architect Profit Workshop. It's a four-week curriculum-based online training program built for you, the small firm entrepreneur architect. It starts on November 6th, and it's limited to only 20 people. What will you do with your 20% profit? Learn more today at entrearchitect.com slash profit workshop. My name is Mark R. LePage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 241, and this week, Profit First author Mike Michalowicz is back. And we're talking about how to make your small firm run like clockwork. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM, specifications, and so much more at RCAT.com. FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work that you love. And Revit Rocketship. Learn Revit the fast and easy way with a powerful online course developed by the guys over at F9 Productions. From first-time users to seasoned pros, Revit Rocketship will show you how. Mike Michalowicz, welcome back to Entree Architect Podcast. It's a joy. I'm a repeat, so uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Um, fans or listeners or audience or whatever we want to call them here, the, the Entree Architect community, I'm sure, knows your name because we talk about you a lot. 
in our community about Profit First. You're the author of Profit First, the book about uh, how to be profitable, how to sort of get your finances in order. Uh, I think that's probably what you're most known for. Mm-hmm. Um, you're an entrepreneur behind three multi-million dollar companies and best known for Profit First. Um, he was the first time you were here was episode 147. So it's been a while. This is hundred. This is 241. So almost a hundred wow. episodes since you've been here wow. last. Uh, in addition to Profit First, uh, Mike has written four books, including or four other books, including Surge, The Pumpkin Plan, The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, which is a great one, um, and his latest book just released this past summer, uh, Clockwork, which is Design Your Business to Run Itself. And I know. Listeners like that. Design your business to run yourself, run itself. Yeah, I think that's the ultimate objective and intention for our businesses. Yet, uh, sadly, I discovered for myself, and, and as I do the research for this, that it gets clouded. We we had this vision, you know, when we start our business one day, we're going to make all this money. The business will be running on its own. We'll do what we enjoy the most, you know, the design work, or um, maybe is operating the the architectural firm itself. But the reality is the day we open the doors, we, we get hit by a wave of urgency and panic of, you know, I don't have any customers and, and where do the customers I thought would come? And and then we start going to this day-to-day survival mode. And when we get in that trap of just carrying the business on our back, that's when that, I think that dream of having all that time um, and that freedom goes away. Um, and that's a sad state of affairs. That's why real clockwork is to permanently fix that version of impoverishment. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the middle of the book now. I started it about a week ago and I, and I listened to it when I bring my son to his rowing practice. So I get two, <laughs> two hours every day and I yeah. spend a little time reading it. And, uh, and that survival mode, that survival phase is where so many of our listeners are, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So it, what that is, and it's true, the survival phase, I, I talk about it in profit first, but I really start detailing it more in clockwork to the point where I may actually dedicate a book to this concept. Here's what it is, is we are in point A. So I don't know why I'm making, I know this is an audio I'm doing on the, the screen here, but <laughs> we, are, we are in point A. And I guess anyone that's listening now could just take their fingers and drop it on uh, the table or desk in front of them. Just put a spot on the table with your finger, point to that. That's where you are today. Now, the direction is real simple. If you want to get out of your current situation, you're not making enough money, you don't have enough freedom of time, take a direction that will get you away from A. Now, the thing is, you can, with your other finger, draw a line in any direction, up, down, left, right, on a diagonal. Right. But without the clarity of where point B is, um, we are taking often, 50% of the time, actions that are actually taking us away from the vision we originally had. So the survival trap is that any action we take today that gets us out of the immediate urgent problem feels successful, but only for a day, because the next day you're in the new point A, and it starts this path of, of just wandering aimlessly. So what we need is clarity on the vision of where we want to go, um, and I think everyone knows that. But the second thing is we need to use that as a filtration for every decision we make. So today, when when we're panicked, we don't have enough money in the bank, we need more sales, and our vision is to have a... Uh, a firm that is famous for its uh, avant-garde uh, commercial design, when that next prospect comes in the door, we have to have the discipline of saying, hold on, this is a residential you know, kitchen remake, uh, and yes, it's immediate money, but it's not congruent with where I want to go. 
do I have the courage to stay consistent with my vision and pass up on that customer so when the right customer does come, I have the availability and readiness. And sadly, most of us just take that next gig because we just need the money and never consider that vision, and therefore the vision gets obliterated. How important is it to have uh, that sort of focus on a specific market? Oh. I, I talk about target market all the time. I oh. try to hammer it home constantly. Architects want to be generalists. Oh, they they so want to do everything for everybody. So, yeah. so talk, to, talk to these people and, and reinforce what I've been teaching them. Yeah, so I'll give you a perspective that I think every architect, actually everyone can relate to. It's not in our industry. It's in with doctors. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, um, the doctor that you see that's your general practitioner, he or she does a uh, uh, an annual checkup. Hopefully you get an annual checkup, right? And they, they check your body over. Uh, they, they examine for what's called surface-level issues. Do you have a skin rash? Do you have this or that? Is there an indication of a significant problem? Now, the challenge for that doctor is they uh, are, since they're a general practitioner, they serve a general population of customers that can have any issue. Therefore, it's constant schooling at a very surface level. They identify problems. They actually don't fix many problems. Um, They can only attract people in their general vicinity. It's called a convenience purchase. You know, if my general practitioner, I'm in New Jersey, if my general practitioner is in California, I am not flying out to California for a checkup. I will find someone that's easily accessible. And... There's also downward price pressure. I'll, I'll pay $50 as a copay, but I'm not going to pay $5,000 for a general practitioner. Here's the interesting thing. The second that general practitioner looks at that rash on my skin and says, oh, my gosh, that's, that's not just a rash. That's skin cancer. I then will go to a specialist. When my life is on the line, I will go to a specialist. So now if that specialist says, hey, um, I'm not in New Jersey. I'm in California, but I, I serve the exact problem you have and can fix that. Yeah, I, yeah I'm flying over to California. If they say, you know what, uh, we charge $5,000 for an exam, um, okay, I will find the money because my life is on the line. The, I think the most fascinating part is my decision as a customer to hire that specialist is based upon repetitive, or repetitive um, examinations, meaning that doctor, I want a doctor who says, oh, I've diagnosed that 5,000 times and corrected it. I don't want a doctor who says, oh, I've never done that before. This is my first, but well, fun, right. you know? That's the problem we as architects have. If I'm a general practitioner, realize you're attracting a general audience. You're going to experience downward price pressure because they see, you know, an architect is just an architect. So therefore, I just want the cheapest solution. They don't see their life on the line. They just see this as a necessity for the next stage of their house. But there's certain customers, it's the minority, but there's certain customers that see the right architect as a life-saving situation. This is going to have such impact on their future, the, the, the beauty, the, the function, or whatever it is. Those customers will seek out the best of the best, and it's always in their category. They'll say, who has done this successfully hundreds of times before? Who knows my market better than even I do? Because that's a person that can serve me extraordinarily well. And if you're a general practitioner, you'll never attract those customers. You'll be in a downward price pressure game. But if you're a specialist, you'll attract the best customers who will go out of their way to engage your services, pay you a premium, and they want someone who's the master of the industry. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. It's the the idea of of targeting your market makes everything easier because now you're only focusing on one customer and doing everything for that one customer. You become an expert in what you do. You can market towards that one customer. Everything you do is is uh, is easier and more effective. 
you know, the pushback I get though, Mark, is uh, well, what if that industry goes away? If that yeah, market, exactly. right? That's the big risk. So um, my response is this, and and I've done this through study. I've studied every industry or market that has collapsed. The ninety nine point nine percent of markets collapse over years, right? So um, the the horse and buggy. I studied the, the collapse of the horse and buggy. It was replaced by the automobile. Um, so if you were selling buggy whips, you know, you were in trouble. Did that industry go away overnight? No, but that's a term they used. It was actually a 10 year decline. Very slowly, automobiles were coming in place. The indicators were there and people who were making buggy whips, uh, the smart ones started making steering wheels. You know, we have to realize that any market we serve, say it's a, a religious community or it's a, um, it's a certain market, their demands can ebb and flow. But it never disappears overnight. We just have to be cognizant of if it's starting to ebb for a long period of time, it's time for us to find a new niche. I've also found um, that when you start targeting a niche, it's usually only within six months to a year that you can have a degree of competency for that market that the general practitioners can't. So you're already superior. If you're willing to stick with a niche for six months to a year, you can stand out. And the last thing is this. When it comes to targeting a niche, we are not talking about niche exclusivity. We're right. talking about niche specialization. When, if some great customer knocks on your door and it's not within your market, but it's great money and you can serve it, still take it. I'm just saying with niche specialization is we're going to start catering to a specific market. We're going to learn it. We're going to market to them more aggressively than anything else. The other work, because your reputation will still flow in, take it. But I want to get the majority of your marketing effort in this special community, and over time, You'll become recognized as the authority. Right. You want to build a brand around a specific market. That doesn't mean you can. You have to reject everything that doesn't exactly. fit within that, that definition. Yeah, and that's a classic misunderstanding. People think like, oh my gosh, if I declare a niche, I have to fire all of my historical clients who aren't in it. No. No one said that. We're just specializing. Right, right. So so small firm architects are small business people. You know, they, they own small businesses. Many of them, when they get into architecture, don't realize that. You know, that they, they, uh, they're not taught that in school. No. That's one uh-huh. of the reasons why I launched Entree Architect, because there was this huge vacuum of knowledge that nobody knew what to do when they got out of architecture school. I felt that pain. I started learning what I needed to learn. It became a passion of mine to learn business and, and become successful. And now my passion is to teach others to do that. Um, but they come out of school helpless, and they don't even know. And, yeah. and so, and your, your mission in life, I can tell from the books that you write is yeah. to help those people to oh sort my of help, teach them what they need to yeah. know to be more successful. So we have an audience listening. That's, that's completely overwhelmed. They have yeah. so many things going on. They're trying to do everything themselves or yeah. micromanage the staff that they're working with. And they don't know how to get out of that. So, so let's get into the book a little bit about how, how do you do that? Because that's essentially who that book is written for is somebody who is overwhelmed with all these things they're doing and they, they're trying to figure out how to get out of that situation. Yeah, absolutely. My, my peeps. Uh, and I've, I've lived through this. Uh, I call it entrepreneurial poverty. And just to put kind of a, a, an understanding of what this challenge is, entrepreneurial poverty is this outward perception. The day you start your architectural practice, the world thinks you're rich. You're like, Oh my God, you're, you're an architect. You, start your own business, you're, you're a millionaire. Right, especially for architects because everybody wants to be an architect. Everyone wants to be an architect. Uh, it's a glorious title, and everyone thinks you're immediately a millionaire. And <clears throat> by the way, they think you live a life of luxury. You sit and you do a couple of drawings, right. and you sit back and serve champagne, so you barely even work. 
Well, the, the reality, that's the perception from the outside world. The reality is you actually make no money. Uh, you're struggling to put food on the table in many cases, and you're working your tail off. There's this total misconstruct of what the reality is. Yet we as entrepreneurs then feel that we have to placate to that perception. Like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. If right. you don't walk that confidence, you're going to scare away customers after all. Yep. I call that entrepreneurial poverty. It's this unique situation of a perceived wealth when we're actually impoverished time-wise, financially. Uh, we're just drained emotionally. So that's what I'm trying to fix. Yeah. Before you before you get any further, I, I, I just want to reinforce that because I, I don't think a lot of people think of that because I think the majority of people who are listening right now are nodding their head and they're like, yeah, yeah, that's me. Right, you know, right. but but nobody yeah. admits that we're not we're talking we're not talking about that in the community. You know, we're not we're not out there, you know, bragging that you know that uh, we're suffering when we're we're pretending we're not, uh, but yeah, we there's are. A, there's a social construct that actually restricts us from sharing the truth, and it's simply social etiquette. Yeah, like if you and I ran into each other at an architectural event or something, like, how's business going? And, and we're acquaintances. The response is not like, oh man, I'm really struggling. Life sucks. I, I can't tell you how hard it is. The right response is, I'm fine. I'm fine. Everyone's fine. And then there's this braggadociousness we get over certain metrics. Like, you know, one person says they do a million dollars in revenue. It's like, oh my God, that, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing a million too. Or, you know, I got seven employees. You only have four. We actually put value in numbers that actually stress our organization. The more revenue a organization generates, the more stress it puts on the organization because what revenue is, is obligation. The more I sell, the more I'm obligated to deliver a service, which therefore stress on an organization. The more people that I hire, the more employees I have, that's more stress on the organization. And I'm not saying stress is a negative thing. I'm just saying that that's, that's a significant responsibility that we need to balance out. Um, so to your early question, your first question is, you know, how do we start right. this process? How do we get out of the overwhelm? Yep. The first step, actually, I didn't even put this in clockwork specifically, but we really do have to make a declaration. Are we fed up with doing everything. And sadly, many people say they are, but they're really not because their behavior is what determines that. Many of us are in the grind and to say, oh, I, can, I can't do this again, yet the next day we do it again, and the next day we do it again. And we follow this repeating path of carrying the business on our backs, which will never get us out of the situation. So we do have to make a significant declaration, and, and maybe we can even wrap up the show. I'll tell you one that's very bold, but saying, I'm done with this. Uh, not done with the business. I am done behaving this way. Yep. Instead of doing the work, I'm going to design the outcomes. And that's that's the arc of what Clockwork is about, is moving to this different kind of mindset and responsibility base. So the step one is you must declare that you're no longer going to be to doing the work. You're going to be designing the outcomes. And if you want, if you want to do the work, by the way, there's no shame in that. Some of us love to do the work. And maybe that's where you get all your joy and satisfaction. Realize you're going to, if that's all you want to do, you're going to have to do some of the dirty work too. You're going to have to clean the toilets and do the billing. That's just part of the game. If you decide to become a designer of an architectural firm, meaning someone that really choreographs all of your resources and staff to achieve the vision you have, the trade-off here, of course, is you're not going to be the architect. You're not going to be doing the drawings and stuff. The beautiful thing as an owner of the business, you can reinsert yourself and you can kind of Superman yourself in sometimes and, and do a couple of things, but you're really going to change yourself. You're not a doer. You are a uh, an entrepreneur, a, a, a true business owner, not a business doer. Yeah. And and something that I remind people is that that if you do go through a process like you're talking about 
and you build a business that succeeds and is and is set up properly and the systems are in place and it's and it's thriving profitably you can then go back and then take on that role of you know architect that's um, the beautiful thing it's all right it's all right as a business owner Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect, RCAT, FreshBooks, and Revit Rocketship. Hey, are you going to Green Build in Chicago in November? It's coming up and coming up soon. If you're going to be there, check out RCAT at booth 529-529. Tell them that we sent you over there. This year's theme for the Green Build Convention is Human by Nature, focusing on sustainable buildings and practices that are accessible to everyone. Did you know that you can use RCAT to find lead data on building products? RCAT's powerful search engine can help you find the product information you need that meets all of your environmental standards. Best of all, like everything at RCAT, it's my favorite part, it's free. It's all free at RCAT. Check out RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. Go check them out today and visit them at GreenBuild this November 14th and 15th, 2018 at booth 529. And let them know that, hey, Mark from Entree Architect sent you. Our friends at FreshBooks have been supporting us here at the Entree Architect podcast for a long time now. They've been a platform sponsor for well over two years. So thank you, FreshBooks. So you've heard me talk about FreshBooks a lot here at the Entree Architect podcast. Every episode, in fact, for quite a long time now. But did you know how FreshBooks actually was created? How it came to life? Well, it happened when their founder, Mike, accidentally saved over an invoice. And he kind of snapped. He was using Microsoft Word to bill his clients. He had studied accounting at school, but found that every accounting software on the market was built for some other business, not for him. He was frustrated. He wanted something different, something better, something that was designed for him, a self-employed professional. So he built it. Today, millions of people use FreshBooks, and on average, FreshBooks customers save about 16 hours a month. 16 hours a month. What could you do with an extra 16 hours? Getting started with FreshBooks is ridiculously easy. Most people send their first invoice seconds after starting their free trial. And the same goes for time tracking, managing expenses, collaborating with contractors, and viewing financial reports. So give FreshBooks a try. It's free for 30 days. Just visit entrearchitect.com FreshBooks. And then let them know that we sent you by sharing Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks to access your free, unlimited 30-day trial. Revit Rocketship is a new online course developed by our friends Alex Gore and Lance Psycho over at F9 Productions. They're the guys from the Inside the Firm podcast. Their new online course will get you up and running with Revit fast and easy. It's completely different from anything else available online. You're going to learn how to model in Revit just like it gets built. And you won't even need to start from scratch. Alex provides you with a complete ready-to-go template to get started. It's the actual Revit template that his firm, F9 Productions, has developed over the past decade and uses today. 
He'll walk you through their proven method of developing a Revit model and end up with a completed set of construction drawings that you can use for your portfolio or reference when you develop your next project. Revit Rocketship is based on years of experience using the software and teaching Revit at the university level, so they know how to get you up and running fast and easy. I love that Alex and Lance are sharing their knowledge and I want you to check out Revit Rocketship. Register today for Revit Rocketship at entrearchitect.com slash Revit. That's entrearchitect.com slash R-E-V-I-T. RCAT, FreshBooks, and Revit Rocketship. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. So you can you can you can be what you dream of being as, a, as when you first started. You wanted to sit behind your your drafting board or computers today and design. That's what you became an architect for. But you can't do that now. If you've started your own business, your responsibility is to build and grow that business first, and then go create your art after you've built the business. Yes, but I use an analogy. Um, I put it in the book. A lot of us say that our relationship relationship to our business is a parent-child relationship. You know, I gave life to my business. I'm now nurturing it and protecting it with the intention of growing it. And one day it will be strong enough to actually re- re- uh, return to me, to serve me, to pay me and give me freedom. I, I believe that analogy of a parent-child relationship is actually a super poor analogy. Um, I believe a better analogy by far is that of conjoined twins. I believe that our business actually shares, you know, shares a body. It shares critical organs. Uh, we share a heart and legs. Therefore, the separation is not that the hopes that one day the business will have its own maturity and take off. It's actually a very surgical and careful disconnect. But you can disconnect the conjoined twins that you are, um, and by doing this. Once you fully achieve it, now the business has independence. You will always share a soul, right? But the business will have its independence. And this now allows you the freedom to insert yourself in the way you want. But that is a discipline process, the separation process. It takes time and discipline. And when you're doing that, you can't also be doing the work inside the business. You have to make this decision to extract yourself if you want to insert yourself. Yeah, and that step one is super important. That declaration that you're going to do this is just that, is that I am am willing to step away from the design of architecture. I'm I'm, I'm willing to step away from the thing that I thought I was getting into in order to build this organization that can thrive and that will allow me later to surgically separate yourself and then find your way back to where you wanted to be later. People successfully. Misunder- successfully, right. <laughs> People misunderstand what a, being a business owner is. I'll give you a good example. Just drive over to your local McDonald's anytime you get a chance. And when you walk to the, the, the uh, cashier, ask him or her, say, hey, may I talk to the owner real quick? They won't be there. The owner will not be there. The owner likely owns multiple McDonald's franchises. The manager will be there. Uh, the staff will be there, but the owner wants, won't be. In our businesses, an owner re- actually removes themselves from the business. They are looking from above. They're managing by numbers, I, you know, paint by numbers effectively. They are moving around the resources to make that business run optimally. But if you're the one flipping the burgers or you're the one who's running around like a banshee, the manager often, just putting out the next fire, proverbially and figuratively, um, and literally, I should say, then you are not a business owner. That's this declaration. A business owner does not work inside the business. That's the clarity I want people to have. Right, right. And if and if that is all you want to do, you should go work for somebody else. Yeah, 
yeah, go over someone else. It's, it's less stressful. At least you have a you know, guaranteed paycheck. But there's so many benefits of being an entrepreneur architect uh, where you own your I own business. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah, yeah. not in a million years. Never, ever would I go back. There's so many more benefits. So, so instead of going down that road, because I, I'm sure we could yeah, talk oh, yeah. about how awesome being an entrepreneur is for, for hours. So once you declare and you know that you're going to yeah. do this, what, then what do we do? What's the first step? All right. The first major step is mastering what I call the 4D mix. And I'll just give you kind of a brief overview of this. But there's four stages that every business uh, is experiencing at all times, but the el- entrepreneur themselves needs to elevate them to the highest level. So the first level that every business must be doing, the first D is doing itself. And doing means the delivery of benefit to the customer, either directly or indirectly. So it's the design work that you do, architectural design work that you do uh, and render to your customers. But it's also the invoicing and marketing of your firm because that supports the delivery of your services and your goods to your customers. The next level up is called deciding. And this is where entrepreneurs already get off track. Deciding, if if you ever made that first hire um, for your architectural firm and that employee comes in, maybe they're a part-timer, Usually the first few days is like, oh my God, this person is better than sliced bread. They have all these questions. I don't have to do the invoicing anymore. I told them to do the invoicing and now they're doing it. They come back with an incessant stream of questions, but they're learners, which is wonderful. But then you notice that you know after a month or two, that incessant stream of questions hasn't stopped. They keep coming and say, oh, uh, another question. And what we're doing is we're actually disempowering that employee by making decisions for them. That's what the deciding phase is. I'm your employee, Mark. You say, hey, Mike, would you go do invoicing? I say, yes. I come back to you a minute later and say, um, do you want me to sort invoices by last name or first name for our customers? And you say, you know what? Let's do it by last name. You made a decision for me. And then I come back and say, do we bill in increments of 15 minutes or is it project-based or how do you want to do this? And you decide. Basically, what we become is a single mind operating multiple arms. There's a uh, Hindu goddess, her name Kali, uh, which we maybe don't know the name, but maybe you've seen the face where it's one female figure head with eight arms. That's what our business becomes. And at a certain point, we're like, oh my gosh, am I hiring just idiots? Can no one do anything on their own? I'm so much better at this myself. I'm just going to do it myself. Everyone's fired. Everyone leave. I'm going to go back to the way it was because it was better. We go back to the old way and they're like, this is the most overwhelming work. I'm working 24 hours a day, right? And we start oscillating between doing all the work or deciding for others about the work which reverts us back to doing. Yeah. The only way out of it is to the next level, D, which is delegation. And most people do not understand delegation. Um, we actually think that when we're deciding for others, we're delegating. That's not true. Delegation is not the assignment of tasks. That's task rabbiting. What delegation is, is the assignment of outcomes. It, it's a subtle but massively important distinction. In the deciding phase, you give me a task. You say, Mike, go invoice. In the delegation phase, you say, Mike, it is critical that we bill our clients timely and accurately. You're going to be responsible for that and making sure that we achieve that outcome. Clear? Okay. Now, you would give me some best practices, too. You say, traditionally, this is how we do our invoicing and so forth. But, Mike, anytime you face a challenge, anytime you have a question, I've hired you for what's on your shoulders there, that head of yours. I want you making decisions on behalf of the company that you believe are in the best interest of our organization and move us forward. And, and by the way, you can do this with your first part-time employee. This isn't like you know C-level people. So, but, but here's the real challenge. I will naturally come back to you and say, hey, uh, Mark, uh, did you want me to sort by last name or first name? Realize the motivation behind this is if I make a decision and you don't like my decision, I'm at risk for you know a punitive situation here. You, you may be upset with me. Also, realize the ego of the, ourselves, the entrepreneur. It's just easier just to tell people what to do as opposed to make them learn uh, and teach them. Um, 
But when they come to you for a question, we have to be disciplined to say, uh, you know what, I want to know what your answer is. Push the decision-making back upon them. And I dare say even that stage, most people listening to the show maybe isn't, aren't doing it, but at least are aware that we should be doing it. This last component, almost no one knows, and yet it's the most critical component. When your employee comes to you with a decision that they've made, and they've made a decision, you have to reward it, all decisions, including bad decisions. And that's the challenge. When an employee says, you know what, um, we got the invoicing out, I decided to sort it by people's middle initial, right? And uh, you can't find anything now. It's our natural tendency to say, are you an idiot? Who would ever do this? No, what we have to do is say, hey, um, it's the system you set up is a little bit confusing for me, but the fact that you made a decision that you felt was in the best interest of the company did move us forward. Good job. Now we're going to need to improve this so the entire company can understand and, and operate more efficiently. And I want to put that responsibility back on you. Find a way to up level this even further. Good job. It's a rah rah conversation for decision making. Now here's the irony: we're very talented at this for ourselves. You know, I make a mistake all the time in my business. I mean, a mistake today. I shoot up 15 minutes late. I'm like, hey, no problem. We can flow with this, you know. But if that's my employee, I'm like, why do you, do you not know? Do you not pay attention to your calendar? We're very forgiving of ourselves. We need to be not just forgiving of our employees, but empowering of them. And that moves to the fourth and final D, which is design. Not architectural design, but organizational design. And organizational design is this. We talked about right in the beginning. Clarity on the vision of what you want your business to look like. Maybe it's the financial numbers. It's, uh, maybe it's the number of employees. Maybe it's how the space feels. It definitely is the emotion you're feeling, the joy you're getting from the business, the way you're impacting others. All those elements. Clarity on that. Then, and this is the important part most people miss on, it's the daily or weekly tactical and strategic decision-making that keeps moving us toward that vision. It'll never be in a straight line. Problems will happen, competition will spring up, an employee will leave, that best customer you had for years all of a sudden just vacates. That happens to all of us. But it's immediately getting clarity on with the vision again and moving that ship forward. Architectural, I'm sorry, corporate design, entrepreneurial design, is the choreographing of our resources. It's the organizational resources and positioning those people, those systems, everything for the optimal outcome, that vision we have. That's the four stages. Just as a summary, we as entrepreneurs need to move as fast as we can to the design phase, but our our organization needs to be balanced between all these stages. An organization needs to be doing work, but it shouldn't be you doing it. It should be your team doing it. So I I hear the four the four stages: doing, deciding, delegation, and design. Yep. When when you get to deciding, and you tell yeah. me that I need to have others decide, yeah, um, or no, delegation. That's in delegation because I'm deciding. In dis, in, you're you know, right, you're right, right. right. So right, once concerned. I'm in the de- delegation phase, which is where we all want to get to because we're all in the deciding phase, we all yeah. want to get to that delegation phase. Um, and I'm going to delegate that work and I'm going to let them take care of it. Where does putting together sort of the standards and the systems and the and and how to do it? Oh, great. Yeah. Where, where does that fall in these four st- stages? Because you don't want to just hire somebody and say, we'll just okay, go for it, right? Yeah. yeah, just just go for it, and then they come back with the you know the the middle initial because you right, never right, right. told them that you wanted it some specific yeah, there way. There's no there's no best practices. Right. Yeah, th- th- there is a, um, a a polar opposite from delegation that entrepreneurs fall into, and it was the exact trap I fell into for years. It's called abdication. Abdication is where it's the uh, assignment of just do. You know, make the business great. Like that's literally basically the direction I gave the right. person, yeah. and so they wander down this crazy path. 
Delegation has to be complemented by uh, best practices or systems. And I write about this extensively in Clockwork, but I'll give you the, the basic overview. Yep. Most um, businesses will historically have done what's called SOPs, standard operating procedures. Um, I did a lot of research on SOPs. I actually spent six years writing this book and found that SOPs are rapidly becoming a very ineffective process. Interesting. The reason is and attention spans are dwindling uh, on both sides. The developer of the SOP ourselves, um, it, it is extremely time-consuming to prepare an SOP. And with the rapid innovation of technology, many of the SOPs we write that include technology, by the time the SOP is completed, the technology is advanced and the SOP is irrelevant. Literally, at our company, we do a lot of shipping. Uh, and so I used, when I started off, and it was just me, I was doing the shipping. I wrote an SOP. It was a, a manual of, of seven to 10 pages, included pictures and all this different stuff, and uh, gave it to my next colleague. The day she got it, her name was Jackie. The day Jackie got it, Jackie came back to me and said, Mike, um, the UPS process, UPS has updated their website. And I was like, oh my gosh. The entire SOP, when it came to the UPS shipping component was irrelevant and I had to go back to work and start doing it. So that's why SOPs don't work on our side. But the other side is the consumption side. You know, see, imagine an employee sitting down and leafing through page after page trying to follow an instruction set. You know, we can barely listen or, or read a, a two-paragraph blog anymore. So that consumption component is very difficult. The new standard is called capturing and capturing is using technology to our advantage. This is where we record our processes as we do them. Going back to the invoicing, for example, what I do is I use screen capture software. If I'm using you know, uh, a, a program on my computer, I'll use screen capture software to record the activity as I do it. I'll give a voiceover as I'm doing it. The software I happen to use right now is called Loom. It's free, L-O-O-M. I'm not you know, necessarily supporting them over anyone else. I, that's just who I use. Yep. I like. I use uh, ScreenFlow. ScreenFlow. For, for, my, for Mac. Yeah, some people use Camstasia. There's a lot of great yep. packages out Camtasia, there. And, and yes. many, of them, many of them are free. Yeah, Jing, Jing is another one I think is Jing, free. I've heard of that one. I've yep. not used it, but I've heard of that. So record the activity as you do on the screen with a voiceover so you're explaining it. Now, here's the beauty. You actually are completing the task at hand while you're demonstrating it, which is beautiful. So work's getting done. Then you transfer this video to your employee and say, here's our best practice. Now, always remember the, the assignment is an outcome. We're empowering these people by delegation. So we say, this is our best practice as we have it today. I don't think it's going to be our only practice. We'll need to improve this. But follow this and then seek opportunity to improve it and you improve it. After you've matched this process, and this is the key, you, employee, are now going to record a new version of this training video for the next person that's going to do it. We're not necessarily going to give it to someone else, but you're going to, you're going to prepare the video so that when we do get someone else, that they can do it. Now, here's the power. This is the secret Jedi mind, Jedi, Jedi mind trick. The ultimate student is always the teacher. Therefore, we need our student, our employee, to teach the process because that's where mastery will be achieved. Secondly, it builds this protective redundancy. If that employee leaves, their knowledge doesn't leave because it's been captured. One last point, I realize as an architect, you may actually be doing some manual stuff. You may be you know, doing drawings and stuff manually as opposed to on the computer. Congratulations on having a smartphone because you can capture the video with your smartphone or the audio. So there's always a way to capture it. Store this uh, on your network, and, and we set up uh, directories. One says our administrative processes, billing. Another one says shipping of goods and so forth. And now people can quickly find the videos and complete the tasks.
Yeah, I love that. I, I, I recommend that too. And, and that's how I do everything for Entree Architect. As I build my team for Entree Architect, it's all being done through video capture uh, and just putting it up on, on Google Drive. And yeah. when, when they when they have to do something, the first thing they do is they watch the video, then they, they go do it. And then if it needs to be updated, then they update it. Right, right. That's the best story because it constantly can be evolving and fresh. Yeah, I think a lot of people just I've we've I've talked about it before, but I think I I've always sort of proposed that um, that you still create that manual, that SOP manual, and I've written on that, and and I love the idea of sort of just acknowledging that that doesn't work anymore. That we've that we've our culture has shifted shifted beyond that. Yeah, yeah. and and that that uh, the permission to not create the operations manual is probably a relief off of many of our listeners' shoulders. That's what I hope. That's what I hope. Uh, you know, I believe there's a lot of these constructs that have existed for decades, and they worked, but they're just no longer relevant. When I wrote, we were talking about profit first on that last time I was with you on your show. Uh, you know, we've always been told, for example, that profit is the bottom line. Like right. literally the vernacular changes. Yeah, the bottom line. Yep. Bottom line, year end. You know, We use these terms uh, defining it, and so it becomes common vernacular to the point where we believe, oh, that must be the way it is. And I call BS on profit coming last. Like I would never put my health last. Uh, why would I put my profit last? I think my profit should come first. And um, we have to just challenge the established axioms and beliefs we have. Uh, the SOPs were great 100 years ago, 50 years ago, maybe even 20, but today no longer relevant. Yeah. So, so we need to move from doing to designing. And and I know we're we're starting to run late here, but but sort of, how, what's the next step with designing? When you sort of when you when you reach that level, that's yeah. that's a planning level, right? That's what you're. Essentially yeah, so, what you're doing yeah. There. It's starting with the vision. It's choreographing your resources, and I believe, by the way, as a sole architect, you can and should be spending time in the design phase. Now, a, a organization does always need to be doing. Like if, if you'd say, you know, I'm just going to design this wonderful company, but we're not going to do any services anymore. Obviously you're going to collapse. I believe the 80-20 rule plays out in so many facets of business. It plays out here too. 80% of the corporate's cumulative time needs to be doing work. The 20% is in the deciding, designing, and delegation phases. So if you're a architect of one, spend 80% of your time doing and 20% designing. Now you can start choreographing your vendors. Like you don't even need to have a, a virtual assistant or anything like that. You can look at the vendors you work with and can you extract more value of them faster and easier to move your offering forward with less effort from you? And the answer in most cases is absolutely. We've never thought that way. Most entrepreneurs I meet with, especially solopreneurs, Mark, are spending 99.9% .9 of their time just doing it. They're in the constant grind and hustle to the point where I'm actually starting to get sick of that term. Um, I want to rebel against <laughs> grind and hustle. I, I call BS. Uh, this, it isn't about, this isn't about backbreaking work. It's about smarter work. So we just need to start extracting ourselves from that and start designing. Um, and one, one key action you can take today is whatever task you're doing that is time consuming, but a low value task, meaning it's not a big deliverable to your customer, but you, it's a necessity, delegate that one thing out. Um, I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's, if it's the invoicing or responding to the same 20 you know, questions you get over and over again, delegate that first piece out because we need to build the muscle of delegation. So many of us are not familiar with it. We're actually afraid to make a hire because we don't know what we're going to do with them. Find a virtual assistant, assign out one task, 
build that muscle, send that sign out a second and you'll start getting momentum. Yeah. And, and you just answered that my one question for every, every guest I have, what's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow. And, and I mean, that's a perfect one unless you want to, I'll give you an audacious one. Give, give another one. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the one thing you can start doing today. Here's the audacious one. And I, I kind of alluded to it when we started things off, make a declaration. Sadly, most businesses only experience transition when the entrepreneur goes through a trauma. You know, they lose all their money and say, I, I can't live this way anymore. Or a massive calling. So they, they have an awakening and say, oh my God, I need to do this. Nothing else matters. And that can be self-given or God-given. I, I'm not saying that kind of calling. I'm just saying that yeah. you feel clarity on what you need to do. Here's one thing to force a trauma, but it's very healthy. Declare a four-week vacation within the next year or two for yourself. A full disconnect from your organization. No physical connection, no digital connection. This is not a work vacation, but four consecutive weeks away from the business. Here's what I found. Every business that I studied goes through a full cycle in a month, meaning there's collections, there's delivery of services, there's uh, acquisition of new clients or prospects. Maybe you lose a prospect, there's employee challenges, admin. If a business can survive that in your absence, that business can grow in perpetuity with you. If you declare a four-week vacation today, uh, not, not to go on tomorrow, but for a year or two out, you will feel an immediate mind shift. It's like, oh gosh, what did I just do? Yeah. Okay. Now we start looking at business. I got a little nervous when you said that. I'm like, impossible. Impossible. <laughs> right, 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 right. Impossible. impossible is the word that came to everybody's mind. Yeah, you have the oh crap moment, and that's the power. That's the trauma. Now we have to start thinking about it. Now we have to commit to this. It can't be like, oh, I maybe I will. Yeah. No, it's Schedule all, it. Put it on your calendar. Even for myself, I'm going on vacation. We're recording this in October. I'm going on vacation starting December 7th to January 7th. And I declared that a year ago uh, for this upcoming one. And the heart attack ensued. I was like, oh my God. And I, you know, I'm an author. Like I do public speaking. I, I, without me, the business is dead. Well, as of today, I have 30 other people speaking on my topics. Actually, someone spoke in Vegas yesterday. So, okay, I actually, I don't need to be the speaker. Maybe I can just be the idea generator. Um, I now have three or four all part-time employees working a couple hours here or there every day who have are doing basically everything. I even ran tests. I went away from my business for a couple of weeks in Australia to see how it's working. And sure enough, problems presented themselves, but those were the problems I need to fix for the next go around. So I have a high degree of confidence. It's not going to run perfectly, but the business now can operate without me. And this is my final thought. If you can make your business run without you, you have defined and designed the most valuable business in the world because that's what people want to acquire, a business that's not dependent on the owner. That's a business that you can retire on because someone else will want to acquire and give you big money for it. MikeMichalowitz.com is the website. Fantastic. I love this. I could talk to you all day long, Mike. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's uh, I, I get so jacked up with when you start talking about the business and, and what we can do to, to fix these things, because that's what this is all about. You know, we're struggling. We're yeah. all st these small businesses, these small firm owners every day. They're struggling and it's stressful and it's and it's upsetting and it's not what they wished their life to be. Right. And, and, and yet we make we make up like 95 percent of the business community is the small little guys. Uh, the, the country, the world actually depends on our success. And uh, I'm adamant now, we don't need to struggle, but we do need to challenge our established behaviors. Uh, that We get very comfortable in a very uncomfortable situation It's because it's familiar. So uh, we can do this. We got this. We yeah. got this. Baby. Yeah, four weeks. Put it on your calendar right four now. Weeks. Pick four weeks. 
get it on your calendar and then work to, to make that happen. Go check the book out, Clockwork, Design Your Business to Run Itself. That will absolutely help you get there. Um, Mike is all over the social media, Twitter, Facebook. You can just search for Mike Michalowicz. We'll also have links to everything uh, to get to Mike at entrearchitect.com slash episode 241. Um, and like I said before, mikemichalowicz.com or clockwork.life if you want specifically for clockwork for the book. Mike Michalowicz will give you everything. He's got a whole business ecosystem happening over there. So it's pretty <laughs> pretty impressive if you want to just Thanks. go check out his website and what he's doing. Uh, he's got so many different pieces to his to his world over there, and it's impressive. Uh, yeah, I hope people love it. And if it's okay, I'll give you one little easier yeah, yeah. shortcut. Because no, no one can pronounce Michalowicz, or let alone spell it. So uh, if you go to MikeMotorbike.com, that, that was my nickname in high school. Here's the irony. I've never driven a motorcycle. But uh, I'm Mike Motorbike. So if you go to MikeMotorbike.com, that gets you to the same destination. All the books, tons of resources are there. All right, cool, cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll have all that. Hey, and a little tip, one little tip. If you go to MikeMichalowicz.com slash books with an S, you can download two chapters of Clockwork for free. It's a, it's a, it'll send you to his book page, but Clockwork is the featured book, and you can get two chapters of that book for free. So that's a little tip for you. I appreciate that, Mark. And Mark, thanks so much for having me. You, first of all, you're awesome. <laughs> thanks. Uh, no, it, it, this, this community needs what you're doing. So thank you. And it's, it's just a joy. I, I feel like last time, I, mean, was, I know it was a while back, but I got just as jacked up t- talking with you last time. So thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. I, I agree. I think I, looking back at the last time, I think you and I connect two Jersey boys connect. Yeah, it must be the I'm Jersey sure boys. it's a sort of, sort of the Jersey vibe. So I appreciate you coming back. You're welcome here anytime. Uh, and, uh, and I hope people will check out the book. So, uh, Mike, this has been a great conversation and, and thank you for joining us here at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you. So there you go. Mike Michalowicz, author of Profit First, talking about clockwork. Go check it out. I love having Mike here. I love having this conversation with Mike. Uh, always inspirational, always gets me excited. So uh, this is episode 241. I want you to Share it with your friends. If you were as enthusiastic and excited about what Mike said and what he shared, please share this with a friend so they can get exposed to the Entree Architects podcast as well. And uh, maybe become a fan, maybe become a subscriber. If you're not subscribed, hit subscribe right now. EntreeArchitect.com slash episode 241 is the link. Hey, I want you to uh, close your eyes and imagine this. Imagine... If you paid all your employees, you paid all your expenses, you paid yourself, and you were left with 20% profit to do with whatever you wanted to do with it. Imagine that. How would that change your business? How would that change your life? What would you do with 20% profit? Because that's exactly what profit is. Profit is to do with whatever you want to do with it. It's your reward for building a better business. What would you do with it? Would you build a bigger, better business? Would you share it with your happy employees? Because they are going to be very happy if you've built a business that earns 20% profit. Would you finally take that vacation with your family? Would you just give it all away to help make the world a better place? Would you simply just sleep better knowing that you've built a business that works? If you don't earn 20% profit at your firm consistently year after year, then you need a better plan. And we'll show you how to build a powerful profit plan 
for your small firm at the Entree Architect Profit Workshop. The Entree Architect Profit Workshop is scheduled to start on Tuesday, November 6th, but it's only limited to 20 people. So if you want to work with me directly to build a powerful profit plan so you know that your firm is going to thrive in 2019, go there right now. EntreeArchitect.com slash Profit Workshop. I want you there. This is a passion of mine. I believe that the profession will thrive when small firms rise up and become successful architecture firms. When we all thrive, the entire profession will thrive. So do this. It all starts with knowing your numbers and we're going to teach you step-by-step in a four-week program. Step-by-step, I'm going to hold your hand. We're going to do this together. Go check it out right now. EntreeArchitect.com slash Profit Workshop. EntreeArchitect.com slash Profit Workshop. Go there. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I am an entrepreneur architect, and I encourage you to build a better business so you can be a better architect. Love, learn, and share what you know. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, 
Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.